Hey, I want to welcome you back to our Kryptonite series. Uh, We are in week number three and uh, really excited to continue uh, in this series uh, with you. And so maybe if you're new or you're online this morning for the very first time, let me give you just a little bit of update. Let's just catch up with with where we've been. So kind of the whole idea behind this uh, series that we have entitled Kryptonite is that we started to talk about uh, the fictional character of Superman. And some of us can go back into our childhood to know that, that he was a, a, a hero that everyone could count on, that, that would always be there through the end, no matter what was going on, that man of steel somehow would, would kind of get all that was needed to protect those who needed to protect. And uh, some of us that can go way back know that there was kind of a little song or some themes about Superman, that he was faster than a speeding bullet, that he could leap a tall building building in a single bound, that he was more powerful than a locomotive. How many are with me today, right? I mean, we all have these thoughts and these memories of Superman, and there was no one and there was nothing that could stop Superman except one thing, and it was kryptonite. And all of his enemies knew that if they had to slow down Superman, if they had to stop him, if they wanted their evil plans to to pursue and, and to be completed, that they had to get Superman in contact with kryptonites. You see, the longer that he was exposed to it, and, and this is really kind of a, a theme for us and what we're going to continue to be in, not only today, but in the weeks ahead, that the longer that he was exposed to it, the weaker he became, even to the point of death. And we're going to make that transition because we recognize that If I ask all of us kind of the question of the series that what was true of Superman is really true of us as well, is that we all deal with some form of kryptonite in our life as well. And the question that I want you to consider with me this morning and in our series going forward is just that. What is your kryptonite? What is that one thing that seems to weaken you, that seems to pull you back from running the race that God has set before you. Paul wrote to the Galatians that that although they were given the gospel and they were giving the, the game plan for successful living, he said, but there are people that keep coming and tripping you up. What is it that keeps weakening us or tripping us up for running the race that God has for you? And we're going to look at a number of those through this series about what is the kryptonite. You probably know already that there were things that, man, that that particular temptation or when I find myself in that situation or when I hear these words or whatever it is, it seems to weaken the path and the journey. So what is it that hinders the life or weaken you from living out your destiny or living free or living the abundant life that we believe that God has for every one of us? We began to talk and we'll continue to talk about Such things about the fear of failure or past regrets, anger, unforgiveness, rejection, comparison, your thought life, sexual issues. Listen, there is kryptonite in all of our lives and what we are believing through this series that God's word is going to give us hope to break the power of sin, the the power of these things that keep us limited from living the life that God has for you. Some of these things are going to be pretty deep to a lot of people. They might touch on some things that you've kept buried for a long, long time. Maybe some things that, quite honestly, you'd rather we not talk about. It's going to stir up some things. But I want you to stay faithful with me today. Listen, we're not stirring up some things just so it's going to mess up your life. We're stirring them up so the power of God can heal you and deliver you once and for all. Listen, there is hope and power over the kryptonite in your life. Jesus is better. Jesus is able. Can you say yes and amen with me this morning? And so we are going to attack this with faith and with belief and hope and knowing the songs that we sing. There is healing in Jesus today. There is deliverance in Jesus today. There is victory in Jesus today. Thank God that we have his hope and his power over our life. One powerful form of kryptonite I think that cripples a lot of people is shame and rejection. 
And I want to take some time this morning, and I want to dig into some of these things that, that maybe there are those of you that are here today, people that you know that, are, that, that have been enslaved, that, that are still chained because of some circumstances and situations that have happened in their life, maybe even long ago that you know that they are not having the ability, maybe it's you today, that you know that you're not able to run this race because of some things that keep tripping you, that there are some hooks and areas that that seem to pull you back in when it's this freedom and this desire of being everything that God has for you today. I remember when I was getting a little bit older, probably just kind of like a a preteen or so, uh, that I did something wrong and my dad told me how disappointed he was in what I had done. He was disappointed in my actions. And then he said those infamous words, Shame on you. I think as parents, as people, it's, it's happened, it's come at us, and as parents, we've pushed it onto our kids. We've, we've cast this concept of shame upon those that are close to us. And I'll never forget in those opportunities, kind of in that vulnerable time of my life, to hear my dad say that to me, shame, casting shame on me. I guess maybe I was a little too old to get spanked at that point, so my dad changed up the tactics, and he introduced me to psychological warfare. His words brought instant shame into my life, and so I begged him to spank me instead. How many can relate? To to feel that disappointment and that power of shame that my father was putting on me was more devastating to me at that moment than if he would have spanked me. Some of you probably would write to say, yeah, I would take the physical pain over the emotional pain any day of the week. But here's what I want you to know, every one of us here today, we all have a father who is really good at psychological warfare. The Bible says that he is the father of lies. And the Bible describes him as the devil. You see, one of the tools that the enemy of your soul wants to use and how he wants to lock you into bondage and not allow freedom to come into your life is to speak shame over your life. We hear that shame on you that comes from a father who is very good at psychological warfare, that takes the little mistakes that we make and has the way to magnify them into such big things that we fear that there is no way out. There are probably a lot of you in this room, maybe a lot of you that are watching online that know exactly what I'm talking about this morning. And he wants to take instances and or actions that have been taken by us, or listen, or that have been done to us to immobilize us from a life of freedom. Listen, I don't think there's anyone in this room that hasn't done an action in our life that has been wrong, that we might be embarrassed about, that we might be ashamed of. And there are probably an equal amount of people that are living with things that have happened to them that still brings great shame to their life. Things that maybe they haven't talked about in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years because there is still this idea, they still hear this voice of shame. Not that they had anything to do with it. It was done to them, but they today still live with shame. On the basic level, shame is the underlying and persuasive belief that we are somehow defective or we have become unacceptable. You see, the precise way that a person believes they are unacceptable can be very unique. That's the challenge with shame. You see, the truth is, is that people can look like they have it all together on the outside, and yet they are racked on the inside by shame. A particular person, it's not a cookie-cutter situation. 
We all have dealt with issues and struggles, and we all reveal it so differently in our life that sometimes it's very hard to recognize people that from their outside demeanor that think they have it all together, yet inwardly they are a bundled mess. And it might be because sometimes it's this idea of too much that is in our culture or in our society society that becomes too overwhelming for someone's life. They've been told they're too talkative, they're too shy, they're too unattractive, they're too emotional. And that word just continues to multiply itself over and over. And there are lies that are now beginning to be believed that, yes, it's because of all of these things and all of the pressure of this life that, that I have not only become unacceptable to the people that are around me, but I must be unacceptable to God as well. And the enemy of our soul allows that recorder to just continue to play over and over and over in our mind. Maybe it's the idea that we are not enough, that we are not smart enough, you've been told, that you are not funny enough, you are not thin enough, you are not cool enough. And so we hear that message, and as it, as it gets into our soul because of maybe things that we have done or things that have been done to us, it etches an indelible mark into our soul. And as much as we try to bury it or run from it, it seems that we can never escape those kind of things in our life. Shame has a crushing weight to the soul of humanity. And there's not one of us in this room that cannot reflect on some moment of shame. It's just a matter, have we come to the place to know that God has been able to deliver me, that God has been able to heal me, that I've recognized that even if I am not too much, that he is more than enough, that he is able to direct my life, to deliver me, to heal me, to know even though the world reject me, I know that the king of heaven, I know the God of this universe is there to embrace me, to love me. I know that I can be whole in him. You see, that's the victory about what God brings to you and I today. You see, the Bible, I want you to know, if you are struggling here this morning, if that's your kryptonite, I'm here to tell you this morning that the Bible has a remedy for shame. Somebody say amen in the house today. The Bible has a remedy for you today, whether it's something you're dealing with yourself or something that has been done to you. Now, beyond... Most Sundays, I ask you if you have your app with you today that a lot of my notes, we're going to put them on the screen or, or you can follow along right there uh, on your app. But if you maybe have your phone or if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to talk exegetical to you this morning. We're going to get into a passage and we're just going to work our way down through the entire chapter of John chapter 4 this morning. So if you have your Bible, or maybe you know how to get to, uh, maybe on version, or there's a Bible app on your phone, why don't you even do that with me this morning? And, and, uh, and just start in John chapter 4, and we're just going to systematically read it. I'm going to present this remedy for shame that the Bible shares with us this morning. In John chapter 4, Jesus has just learned that the Pharisees had heard that, that his fame and, and the process of him uh, baptizing believers and making disciples was now growing at a rate that they became very afraid of, that, that Jesus' reputation was starting to grow. And, and from a religious sense, these religious leaders were trying to, to quash Jesus and, and this movement of what he came in the world to do. And so they were now bringing increasing pressure upon him. And so Jesus, as part of this time, knew that he would leave the area of Jerusalem, kind of down in the southern part of Israel, and move his way back home up towards the northern part of Nazareth of where he grew up. And so that's kind of the lead-in to John chapter 4. And it begins this way in the next verse. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So again, if we are looking at a starting point, this is where we begin. On this road from Jerusalem to Nazareth, the Bible tells us very emphatically that Jesus had to go through Samaria. I'm going to make more sense out of that for you in just a minute. 
As Jesus came to this town in Samaria, it was called Sychar. It was part of the plot of ground that Jacob, back in the Old Testament, had given to his son Joseph. You'll remember Joseph was the little boy that got the coat of many colors, was, uh, was, was put into slavery for years, but then made his way. God promoted him into Egypt, and he brought deliverance to all of Egypt. And so Jacob gave Joseph all of this land. We're talking hundreds of years ago. And in that place, Joseph and Jacob filled that land land full of wells, that there was always a, a plethora of water wells for the people, and the lifestyle and the livestock uh, greatly increased during that region and through that area. And so as Jesus was making his way back home and now finding himself going through Samaria to Sychar, it says that he was tired from the journey, and so he sat down beside one of these wells of Jacob and Joseph that had been there for hundreds of years. What we can do if we step back for just a moment is that Jesus was about to walk into a mess. Jesus was about to walk into a mess that had been happening for a long, long time. But as I want to share with you this morning, that's the point. You see, that's the point of some of the difficulties and struggles that we find ourselves in. You see, one of the big things that shame does for us is that it isolates us. We feel alone. We feel that no one can understand, that no one cares. And the more that that thought process happens in our mind, it just continues even more, almost like a, a, a constrictor to our soul that makes us feel more alone all the time. Listen, we might paint a smile on the outside, but inwardly we are continuing to be crushed around us. And Jesus in this moment recognized that there was a, an opportunity for not only his action, but now for you and I to understand his word, that no matter how we feel, the first action that we have to believe is that Jesus doesn't run from your mess, that Jesus runs to your mess. That's the first thing I want you to hear today. If you are broken, if you are feeling alone or isolated, you are not alone today. That there is a power from heaven that desires to break through those chains, through those constricting moments, and overwhelm you with a sense that he is there for you. That Jesus had to go through Samaria. You see, what maybe some of you would understand, maybe not everyone today, is that Jesus, that the Jews had a real hatred for the Samaritans. And so it's really, in understanding the background of this story, it is inconceivable that Jesus would even go to Sychar. In fact, if we're just plain honest, it was a racial thing. I mean, that's something that is very prevalent in America today, that we have to be careful about every comment that we make, about every move that we make, because there's this accusation that it's racist, right? So this was like that times a hundred between the Jews and the Samaritans. It had been going on for hundreds of years. We're going to read more about how, how that is true. We're going to read it right from, from the Bible. But we recognize that as part of this story that Jesus in running to this meth, mess was taking on a, a, one of the biggest issues that was happening in the culture of that time. It made me think back to a story when, when Debbie and I were in Bible college. We were in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, one of the things that we helped to begin was a, a kid's uh, kind of a, a kid's hour, story hour, Bible hour in what really was probably the biggest project, uh, housing project in Providence. And so once or twice a week we would go and, and, and we would take a, a ministry team and with kids and we'd gather them together in the park and, and we'd play games and we'd tell them about Jesus and, and, and you know, it was just some amazing things that were taking place. And uh, in one of those encounters as we were kind of, uh, it, it, as the program was kind of getting bigger and bigger and more, more kids were coming all the time, there at that time was a, a younger guy older than us, I was probably right around 19 or 20 years old, this guy was probably 24 or 25, and he was kind of the, the big shot 
over the project. He led the gang that controlled that area of Providence and that project. His name was Bobby, and he came up to us one day. And, you know, I came from central Pennsylvania farm country. I'm a little bit out of my element, right, in, in what's happening in an inner city project. Uh, uh, it was prim, prim, predominantly African American, and we were by far predominantly white. And he came to us and he said, I've been hearing about what you're doing for the kids here in the project. And I, I, maybe we were too young and stupid to know like, how scared we should have been in that moment. But he said, I want you to know, he said, thanks. These kids, these kids need it. These kids, he was a drug dealer. This guy probably killed people, whatever. Just kind of the irony of this conversation. And he said, if anybody gives you any problem, you just tell them, Bobby said you're okay. And so we continued on, and, and we organized one big event that not only was going to happen in the projects, but we were going to bring all these kids back to the school. We had buses, and we had vehicles, and we were going to bring them back to the school, and we were just going to kind of have this day of, of just blessing them, loving on them, and, and doing all these kind of things. And so it, it went kind of through the evening, and uh, Debbie's sister, Annette, had a van, um, and... <laughs> I mean, if, it, if you want to talk about, I mean, old school kind of like one of those, like whether surfer van, drug dealer van, like whatever, had the little bubble window on the back, you know, like the, the beginnings of customized vans. You remember, babe? Um, and it was kind of customized in the inside and whatever. The windows were tinted and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I had, you know, access to it. And, and so while we were finishing up, actually Bobby showed up to the event and wanted to see what was going on. And so I said, hey, you, you might want to hang out with us and whatever, and, and he body experience kind of thing. And uh, I'm like, hey, we got to get all these kids back. You know, the, the, the night's over. We'll, why don't, we'll just take you back, you know, make sure everything's set, and, and then we're going to get out of here. It's probably like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And here comes this, like, kind of customized, like, druggy kind of van with two white guys, right? My buddy was with me. I'm driving it. He was in the passenger seat. We're going through, like, the the ghetto of all ghetto projects, like two white dudes in a van at like 11 o'clock at night, right? Again, I didn't realize, like, I don't think we should be here, right, in the moment. The difference was is that Bobby was in the van with us. And he kind of told us, hey, just pull up. You know, there were a bunch of guys. There was a fire barrel going. There were a bunch of guys just hanging. I was like, just go pull up over there. And so we pull up, and instantly, like five or eight guys just kind of like looked at these two white dudes in this like druggy van in the middle of the projects there. And one of the guys came over and just tapped on the glass. And my buddy drove down the window, and he said, you two whiteies shouldn't be here. You know that. And I was kind of like, yep, I know, I know, yep, yep, should not be here. Little did he know that the boss was right behind us. And Bobby opened up the two doors on that side of the van, and he just kind of ripped into those guys and, and told them, as long as, as long as he says it's okay, as long as we're with him, everything is cool. Man, I'm telling you what, for the days and weeks that drove out, we drove through that ghetto like we were like, like all we had to say is, hey, Bobby says we're good, Right? And we went into places and did things. But I remember initially going into that ministry, there was such this sense of racial tension and this idea that truly exists, like, you don't belong here. You're not one of us. And as much as you can understand, that's what the story that we read about in John chapter 4. Jesus going to Sychar was not this kind of like pat on the head, like everything's going to be cool. No, it was this racial hatred that had taken place. In fact, most Bible writers would tell us that the Jews would be willing to add 10 additional miles that they would walk around Samaria and Sychar. If they had to go from Jerusalem to the north part, that they would walk around the area of Samaria. It would add an additional 10 miles to their walk, and they would willingly do that because they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And yet in our story, the Bible said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
when everyone else would have avoided this, when everyone else would have allowed the issue to permit, God says, I'm going to do something about that. It says that it was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. You see, any upstanding woman would never had come to draw water at midday. And she would never come to do it alone. You see, if you were an upstanding woman in the community, you would recognize that, that there was a, a code, that there was a, a, a culture, that there was a, a way that, that things would do. But here comes a woman at noon, and she was all alone. But as I said to you earlier, that's the power of shame. Its goal is to keep us isolated and alone. You see, drawing water was a social habit of the women, certainly of that culture and of that day, and certainly of those who lived in this city. All the women early in the morning would gather together and they would bring their water parts and they would go to these many wells and they would spend time together as the women of the city. They would catch up on each other's family. They would swap recipes. They would probably gossip a bit. Hello? I told you that uh, over this last year I met a couple of old timers that ride their bikes here in Erie and and every morning they ride Presque Isle um, at 7 a.m. They get on their bikes and we do one lap of, of Presque Isle. And then they stop up at Brouhaha at the coffee shop. And then they drink coffee for two hours. My nickname among this group of probably 13 or 14 guys is the kid. Every one of them are probably 70 to 80 years old. And so they reference me as the kid. But every morning, we get up and we do a lap around Presque Isle and then sit and drink coffee. They do, anyway, for two hours. And one guy told me, he said, yeah, we sit and we solve the world's problems every day. You see, and that was kind of what would have been happening in Samaria. That for most women, they would get up in the morning and they would get their water parts. And with great excitement, man, all the girls are going to be there. And maybe for an hour or so, we're going to hang out together. We're going to tell stories. We're going to talk about our family. We're going to have a great time. Never would a woman come to draw water at noon and never would she come alone. You see, drawing water was what always was done as the first thing in the morning. Obviously in a culture such as that, we know that still today in those kind of places is that water is life. To you and I, it doesn't matter. At any time of the day, we're going to turn on our faucets and life, water is going to pour out of those spigots. But that's not usually how the world lives. And many of you know through our project with WorldServe, there are literally millions of people that don't have drinking water at any time during their day. And so it was important in this time to know that water is life. And they had to make sure that their family was going to be taken care of and that water was the first thing that you went after every morning. But this Samaritan woman came alone and she came at midday. She was separated from all of the other women. She was never included and there's a reason for that, and some of you know, and I'll just help to enlighten you in just a moment. And so Jesus speaks to the woman and says, will you give me something to drink? Again, I want you to hear that it was Jesus who initiated the conversation. It was Jesus that came to the mess, and it was Jesus who initiated the conversation. You see, I never want to believe for you or for me that Jesus never cares. Jesus always cares. Jesus is never last. He's always first. He's always, he's never not talking. He's always talking. He's always initiating. If we will open ourselves up, we will understand that he's always the first to initiate the conversation. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. Remember what I told you in the setup? You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. 
I want you to see both parts. She's not just a Samaritan, but what? I'm a Samaritan woman. This should not be happening. You should not be talking to me, first of all, because I'm a Samaritan, and second of all, I'm a woman, and you know why I'm here at this time of the day. This should not be happening. You see, that's what I want you to tell yourself whenever you feel as if God doesn't care or God doesn't know what you're going through. Because God's the first one to come to your mess, and God is always the first one to initiate the conversation. Even when we would say this shouldn't happen, I'm too bad, this situation is too wrong, I'm, I'm too broken, I want these words to break through the bondage of your heart and to know that God is always on the assault, God is always coming, no matter what the situation is or circumstance, you have been led to believe the lie that you are living in today is that God wants to break through that today. How is it that you can ask me for a drink, she said, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you only knew the gift of God and who, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you. You see, rather than us holding on to this shame and these things that have been spoken about us, spoken to us, the constricting that we have lived in. You see, it was this God who was initiating. And what he wants to say to you is that if you only know who, if you only realize who is coming at you. Listen, some of you, it's right now. It's in this moment. If you only knew who is here with you today, what you would be begging for, what you would be asking for is everlasting water. You see, Jesus is declaring that there is a solution to shame. In the midst of feeling isolated, in the midst of feeling alone, it is a God of love that shows up in the midst of all of that. Look at your past situation and see who shows up regardless of excuse or bias. You see, it was this woman to say, (laughs) this should not happen. You're a Jew And I'm Samaritan. How is it that you would even come and talk to me? Listen, I can't say it enough. I know it seems a little antiseptic by us just reading it in the Bible, but it would be like you and I going into the projects or going into a place that we have no business being there. Our life could depend on us being at the wrong place at the wrong time. This is where Jesus showed up. I'm here to tell you, dear friends, with the power of the Holy Spirit behind me, there is nothing that has been done to you. There is nothing. Maybe, is it coming back on? what's happening or what's going on, there would be people that say, maybe the devil's trying to mess up the sound system. I would never usually say that, but I'm not totally convinced that that's not what's happening today. You see, we're talking about life and death for souls here today. And whatever it might happen to confuse a mind or a situation, to take it off of the truth of what God wants to speak life to someone's soul today. Not saying it is. I'm not saying it isn't. But I want you to look past your situation that who is willing to show up regardless of excuse or bias. Listen, whatever excuse you want to come with, Jesus said, I don't care about that. Well, you shouldn't be here. This shouldn't happen. You can't do it. Jesus said, I don't care about that. I'm still coming. Jesus said, I have to come to Samaria. No one else is going to come, but I'm going to come. 
You see, we may all live with some external baggage, but it doesn't have to define our present or our future. See, what I'll try to share at the end very quickly is, is that, that shame hits all of us. And there's some good. It's what we do with it and what we understand about it and, and how we can get rid of it that makes all the difference in our life. She said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you find this living water? You see, it was her current situation that kept her focused on the external. Jesus said just a moment ago, if you only knew who was standing right here in front of you. Isn't it amazing how our pain, our shame, our struggles can be so shielded in front of us that we can't even realize that Jesus is right there with us. He said, if, if you only knew who is here, the first thing that you would ask for would be living water. You would move past the external. You would move past all of the hurt and the pain that you've lived with, and you would say, Jesus, heal me right now. Jesus, take it away. I'm tired. I'm done with it. I'm tired of, uh, of being contained, of being laughed at, of being uh, washed over. Today, I want to be free, and I want to live the eternal existing life that you have for me. You see, her current situation kept her focused on the external. He said, she said to him, sir, how are you going to get this water? The well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. Basically what she was saying is, Jesus, no rope, no hope. But Jesus was pushing her past the external to the eternal. He said, everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again and again and again. Jesus is saying, listen, it's not about this water that's in the well. It's about who is standing right here with you. But whoever drinks the water that I give them, they will never thirst again. Can somebody say thank the Lord today? Listen, we're not talking about water anymore, hello? We're talking about the healing power of Jesus, about who shows up in our mess, about who initiates the conversation to say, listen, if you'll trust in me, if you'll put me first, we're going to get out of this. I'm going to lead you out of the darkness, and I'm going to bring you into this marvelous light. In fact, Jesus goes on, if you drink this water I give you, you will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give you will become in you a a spring of living water that will well up inside of you. Listen, Jesus is not just looking to get you out of the mess. Jesus is looking to get you out of this. He's willing to put your feet upon the rock, and he's going to give you a voice to shout that God is good, that God's a healer, that God was able to do what no man has ever been able to do. I was once, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see you see, Jesus said, when I come in, listen, I'm not just going to rescue you out of that. I'm going to put a well of living water that's going to flow out of you, that you are going to bless those that are around you. God's going to take your trial, and God's going to give you triumph to be able to celebrate with. You see, God was not interested in giving her a pass. He wanted to give her a platform. You see, he's not just looking to get that out of your life. He wants you to broadcast and let people know how good Jesus is. He delivered me. He took me. He is the way maker today, friends. He is my hope. He is the truth that leads me. He is the light that brought me out of darkness. He wasn't just trying to get her out of it. He was wanting to give her a platform to declare the wonders of God over her life. You see, this water is not designed just to give us momentary relief, but to give us new vision and direction for our life. You see, that's what some of you need to hear today. It's not just getting some of this stuff out of your life. It's realizing that God wants to take that circumstance and use it, you to use it as a platform to bring healing to others. I've said it before, God doesn't save us to keep us safe. He saves us to make us dangerous. Hello? Let me just put a face on this for you this morning, and, and maybe honestly some of you won't like it. We've probably heard about postpartum depression that some ladies deal with through pregnancy. 
The first time it became national news here in America was an experience that happened from my five. You can Google it if you want. Sharon comments said that she left the Ames department store. If that doesn't shout 1985, I don't know what does, right? She left the Ames department store for a moment to retrieve her car keys, leaving her four-month-old son, Garrett, in the shopping cart back inside the store. Now, before you get too crazy, in 1985 in our small town, that was no big deal. She claimed that when she returned that Garrett was missing. Someone had kidnapped her four-month-old baby. And this turned into a national story. Every major news anchor, again, you have to be probably 40 or above to remember these names, but Connie Chung, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather, were all reporting on this story from Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, a little coal mining town in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. In truth, what took days to come out is that Sharon killed her son Garrett and left him by a mountain stream where a trapper had found this little baby boy several days later. What ensued was a circus, and rightfully so. Sharon would eventually be found guilty and sentenced to 8 to 20 years in prison for this act that she took upon her little child. But here's the plot twist that you won't find in Google and that the national news would not report on. As the trial was coming to an end, Sharon heard that my mom was the head of the women's ministry for the entire state of Pennsylvania here with the Assemblies of God. In the old days, for some of you ladies that have been around, it was WM's was the name. And my mom led the women's ministry for all of Pennsylvania. And Sharon reached out to my mom if she would come and visit her. You see, the longer that you serve Jesus, the more you're going to meet these kind of grace moments. See, God doesn't save us to keep us safe. He saves us to make us dangerous. We can't preach and speak that God is a healer and God is a deliverer and God wants to bring us life and give us life to the full if we are not willing to walk to Samaria. If we're not willing to walk into some moments and areas that we speak about, but yet we still avoid to say, no, I'm not going there. I've got too much pain or I have too much of a story. I can't do that. And so for years, my mom and dad would drive to Muncie Women's Correctional Facility and would ultimately walk Sharon into becoming a Christ follower. I know Erie's kind of a bigger city, certainly, that I grew up in, but we're still kind of a small town. So if you could just minimize that like a hundred times down. My parents took a lot of heat for a long time, and they heard a lot of how dare you? Who do you think you are to rescue a soul like that? You see, I guess if anyone could live with shame for the rest of their life, Sharon Comets would probably be near the top of the list. And again, this is the part where I said some of you might not like this story because it's still hard for you to process how something like that, but obviously we've understood more and more today about the sickness or the struggle of postpartum. But if we went back 25 years in a small town in Pennsylvania, it was hard for anybody to wrap their heads around it. And how dare anyone talk to a woman like that about the love of Jesus? That there could be hope for her someday that she could be forgiven. You see, she wasn't included with all the ladies going to get water. No one asked her for recipes. No one wanted to fill her in on all the gossip around town. She was alone and she was empty. But my parents 
had to go to Samaria. You see, shame could have enslaved Sharon for the rest of her life, but sometimes God sends people that have to go to Samaria, even if it's for just one woman. But here's the end of the story that we read about in the Bible. That in this encounter that Jesus had with this woman, he took her shame and gave her a platform to proclaim. The Bible says that the disciples returned. They were with Jesus, but they went to get food while Jesus went to the well. And this is what the Bible says. When they returned, they were surprised to see him talking to this woman at the well. Even Jesus' followers couldn't believe what he was doing. I don't know who Jesus is going to speak to you to reach out to. But it might be a moment like this to say, I don't, people aren't going to understand. People are going to question, how could this even be? But Jesus had to go. Then leaving the water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, I need you to come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way to Jesus. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. Who would ever thought when she got up that morning that her life would totally change? And who would have guessed that morning to all the others in town that when they got up the morning... That the woman of ill repute, the woman that no one talked to, the woman that was just a laughing stock in town would become the greatest missionary that Samaria would ever see. That people's lives who were crushed, that were in sin, that were lost, would have an opportunity because someone was willing to believe in the everlasting water of a God who came to run to them, that came to their mess, that was first to initiate the conversation, would ever have a moment that their life would become eternally changed and transformed. Friends, if your shame is your kryptonite, then I want you to know that there can be joy ahead for you. Shame can feel like a lock that maybe is whispering into your ear that you will never be free, but I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus is the key. That Jesus is the key. Will it push you? Will it challenge your own belief? Listen, it could have been easy in my humanity going into that project for me to recognize I don't belong here. I don't fit here. I don't talk the language. I'm not cool enough to live in the hood or be around people in the hood. And God said to me, Jim, you're just a white boy from the central Pennsylvania. And yet I can take you into a project in Providence, Rhode Island and tell little kids about Jesus. That one day I'll continue to go to them and pour to them. And one day this will be a testimony of God's power in their life. And maybe one day God will call you to meet face to face with somebody who you would think is a monster. How could they? How dare they? Only to realize that like Sharon's sin, although so outward, that I think if we're honest with us together here that we have some sin that's inwards. That maybe nobody else recognizes in such a way. But can I tell you, it's just as deadly. You see, shame is a soul issue. I'll finish with this. And I want to give us just a couple of moments maybe for what God wants to speak into our lives today. But we just have to go a couple of chapters back to chapter 8 in the book of John. And somewhat of a very similar situation takes place. The Bible said that these same religious leaders who were pushing Jesus out of Jerusalem to go to Nazareth, you see, they thought they were doing a good thing. They thought they had the upper hand. 
we're going to run Jesus out of Jerusalem and push him back to his hometown. And Jesus said, you know what's in between here and my hometown? This place called Samaria. God says, I'll just do a work in Samaria. These same leaders found a situation where there was a woman that was caught, the Bible says, in the very act of adultery. And they gathered her in the midst of the crowds. And they pushed Jesus to say, the law says that we should stone her for her sin. What say you? Jesus got down and he wrote in the dirt for a few moments. And he said, I say this, those of you who have no sin, then go ahead and throw the first stone. And the next few minutes, all you could hear were some thuds on the ground as big rocks released. They turned and they walked away. And this is what I want you to hear, friend. That Jesus asked the woman, where are your condemners? And she said, I have none. Jesus said, you're right, and neither do I commend, do I condemn you. Leave this life of sin and selfishness. Follow me, and your life will ever be changed. And from in you will not just be cleansing, but from within you will be the life spring of life. I'm here to tell you, friends, it doesn't get much worse in these two Bible stories that Jesus was willing to walk into somebody's mess and to initiate to them. It doesn't matter what the world says about you. I want you to know that I am here for you. Church, hear me today. This is a soul issue. And what we are going to fight in this closing prayer is that there is a father of lies that is still really good in psychological warfare that's telling you, yeah, it'll work for everybody else, but it won't work for you. And I'm here to tell you today that if Jesus can help bring healing to a Samaritan woman, and if Jesus can take an adulterous girl and speak the words of life over them, Can I tell you today, there is nothing in your soul, there is nothing in your life that God is not wanting to become a very present help in this time in your life today as well. Church, he's your hope this morning. This kryptonite we're going to banish today in the name of Jesus. Can you say yes? Why don't you stand with me today all over the crowd this morning?